Oh, Holy Father, as we have been kind of bombarded this week, we as your church want to respond through prayer and through love and compassion in these difficult times. You, God, have been the refuge and strength of your people through many generations. For the people of Afghanistan and Haiti, and for those whose lives and livelihood are endangered by fire or flood or COVID, be their refuge in every moment and in every need. We raise the firefighters and the first responders and their families to you for both these helpers and for their and the sufferers. Would you be their guide and their hope through all the uncertainty and darkness? Be their fortress and give the extra measure of faith needed and show us what we can do. Help us to be sensitive to your prompting and to take time to consider how we might respond to these overwhelming needs. And then help us to follow through with how you may be calling us each to respond individually. And as always, Lord, there's just so many things going on at once. The beginning of a new school year. So we pray for students and teachers and administrators starting school. Help with these transitions. We realize how complicated the pandemic makes everything for us as a church, so we can imagine how difficult it is for all in education. Give each one endurance and patience and wisdom as we adjust to new ways of doing things and give us flexibility to make changes as they're needed and as you call us to do so. And we remember again Don Burgess this week, one of our missionaries, and many others in our family at PBCC who are dealing with scary health crises or losses of various kinds, as well as we pray for those with maybe less critical yet still a health need. We pray that you would bring comfort and peace in these hard days of waiting or recovery or treatment. And we ask that you would give the doctors wisdom and discernment and precision. We pray for the healing of bodies and we pray for broken hearts to be healed too. As for Psalm 46 says, we want to be still now and know that you are God. We want to give thanks and be joyful and rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. You, Lord Almighty, are right here with us in this very moment, in this place. You are our fortress. So we will sit now in silence for just a few moments, breathing out our sorrows and breathing in your hope, breathing out our pain and lament, and breathing in your comfort. So hear the silent cries of our hearts, Lord.
So here we sit, in the tensions of life's joys and sorrows intermingled. Teach us, as we hear from Bernard, give him great wisdom as he shares what you've been working out for him this week from Daniel 6. And as we put ourselves in Daniel's story and consider how he rested and prayed and attended to you even when his very life hung in the balance. Be glorified through our worship here this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, our scripture this morning, Bernard chose from Hebrews 11 and the first few verses of chapter 12. These are famous verses on faith, and it's really what a life of trust, a life of holding fast looks like. And this is in preparation for his message, of course, from Daniel 6. So hear these words of the Lord. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The word of the Lord for such a time as this. So come on up, Bernard, and teach us. Thank you, Sharon. Well, good morning, all. Uh, last month, I read of a French woman who found to her surprise that she had been declared dead. Uh, it seems that a disgruntled former employee persuaded a court to declare her to be dead even without a death certificate. 
and she has spent the last several years trying to get herself declared undead. Uh, but French bureaucracy seems unable to do this. Even the highest court in the land has stated that it was beyond their competence to bring her back from the dead. Um, so she lives in legal limbo, caught in a bureaucratic nightmare. Uh, she is trapped by a declaration of death that cannot be revoked. Um, so I wonder if any of the others here saw that article uh, earlier in July. Uh, it sounds like something from a comedy, uh, as evidenced by the fact that it elicits laughter from you. But uh, alas, this is a true story um, and has caused her great inconvenience, to say the least, as she tries to live as a dead person in a bureaucratic society. Well, today we come to Daniel chapter six, and this is a chapter that is filled with bureaucratic language and with a decree that cannot be revoked. Uh, and both the king and one of his most loyal subjects become trapped by this decree as disgruntled bureaucrats manipulate the legal system to their own advantage and engineer the downfall of a colleague. Now, last week I pointed out that chapters two through seven of Daniel are arranged as a chiasm. Um, so chapter six, the chapter for today, Daniel in the lion's den, corresponds to chapter three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the blazing fiery furnace. And there are numerous parallels between the two chapters. Now, at the end of the previous chapter, chapter five, the Medes and the Persians had captured Babylon and killed its last king, Belshazzar. And the Babylonian empire is over. And Darius the Mede is the new ruler in Babylon. And so he is the, the king of chapter six. Well, we've heard uh, the account from the Jesus Storybook Bible of Daniel chapter 6, and uh, I invite you now, if you've brought your Bible with you, to open to that chapter, and uh, we'll follow along uh, the text, and I'll be using the NIV. So we read at the beginning of the chapter, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now the Persian Empire was much larger than the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire was large enough but the Persian Empire uh, was at least, uh, it's probably three times or more the size. And a large empire requires a large bureaucracy. And so Darius appointed these 120 satraps to govern in all the various provinces across his vast empire. And over them, he appointed three chief ministers, Daniel being one of them. And uh, the satraps were to be accountable to these chief ministers. And this need for accountability, lest the king suffer loss, suggests that the satraps were not trustworthy, that they were likely to use their position for their own personal advantage rather than for the welfare of the king and of his empire. And uh, the news we've been hearing out of Afghanistan this last week is that uh, there's corruption going on among the officials at all levels of government, and that's helped contribute to part of the chaos in the country at the moment. But Daniel, 
uh, distinguished himself above all these officials because of his exceptional spirit. And therefore, the king intended to appoint him over the entire kingdom as his chief official. He would be the chancellor, the grand poobah, or as the Jesus Storybook Bible stated, his most important helper of all. So here we have a picture of Daniel flourishing in a foreign land. His star was continuing to rise. And not surprisingly, this success of Daniel aroused the jealous hostility of the satraps and the two other chief ministers. Verse four. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. And finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So Daniel's colleagues looked carefully to find any fault in how he served in office, but they could find neither corruption nor negligence, neither sin of commission nor sin of omission, neither what he did not, uh, what he did, nor what he failed to do. Daniel was above reproach in everything he did. He was trustworthy. He was completely uh, completely reliable, unlike them. He was faithful to the king, and he was faithful to his job. And so frustrated in their efforts to find anything against him, the officials realized that their only avenue was to find something in connection with the law of his God and with his behavior as a faithful Jew. And so they hatched a plot to bring him down. Verse 6. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So the chief ministers and the satraps went together to the king. Now this verb that's translated here in NIV, went as a group, implies collective assembly, yes, but it's collective assembly in rebellious turmoil. It's an agitated group. These officials were agitated in a state of unrest. Desperate to orchestrate the downfall of their colleague, they schemed and they acted together. And three times in this chapter, they will gather as an agitated throng. Their first destination as this agitated throng is the palace where they come before the king. And they flattered the king. May King Darius live forever. Your majesty, your majesty. Or as the Jesus Storybook Bible put it so wonderfully, your most glittering highness. Magisterial brightness. That really captures the sense of what they're doing. Uh, the entire imperial bureaucracy, all of its many levels, and about half a dozen levels are listed here, has agreed that the king should issue an imperial edict. Now, of course, here, they were wrong. 
for Daniel, his chief official, the most important official of all, was not party to this decision. And what was this edict that they wanted the king to issue? Well, that for the next 30 days, people in the empire should pray only to the king, not to any god or any other person. Now, that's designed to make a king feel pretty good about himself. And uh, the king should issue this decree in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. So the king is easily won over by their flattery. He simply enacts their wish as a written decree. Uh, they lead him right along into this. And the penalty for non-compliance is to be thrown to his lions. So now the conflict is set. It's a conflict between two laws. On the one hand, the law of God. On the other hand, the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And for the bureaucrats, the irrevocable law of the Medes and Persians is really just a tool. It's a tool to be used to their own advantage. And they know that Daniel will be loyal to the law of his God. And in their mind, they have a foolproof plan. They're like the agitated throng of evildoers in Psalm 64. There again, we get this agitated throng. They plot injustice and they say, we have devised a perfect plan. Well, our attention now turns to Daniel. What will happen to him? In verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Now, though Daniel was one of the three chief ministers, he was not privy to the unanimous agreement of all of the bureaucrats. And when he heard of the king's edict, he did nothing different. He went home and he prayed to his God as he always did. Three times a day, he knelt and he prayed facing Jerusalem. This was his daily custom. Even an irrevocable imperial decree was not going to stop him. Even the threat of death would not stop him. Now, at this point, many a sermon would have an extended piece about the importance of being a prayer warrior, of petitioning God in fervent prayer. And I've certainly heard plenty of such sermons. And such sermons, I think, inevitably make most of us feel very guilty about our inadequacy in prayer. We go away feeling we just haven't prayed enough or fervently enough. But I don't think fervency in prayer is the point of this passage. Um, so I'm going to make some comments about Daniel's prayer life, but they're a little bit different than certainly what I've heard in sermons about the importance of praying from Daniel chapter 6. So Daniel prays set prayers at set times in a set location in a set direction. He prayed three times a day. And thrice daily prayer services is still the Jewish custom even today. The early church prayed three times a day. And eventually St. Benedict expanded this into eight times of prayer as part of the regular daily life for monks. And even today, the central feature of uh, certainly of the Anglican church and of certain other liturgical churches is the daily office of morning prayer and evening prayer. 
And these set times of prayer give a rhythm to the day. Secondly, Daniel prayed in a set direction. He faced Jerusalem, where the temple had been. The temple was a house of prayer, for God had put his presence. It was the axis linking earth and heaven. It was the conduit to the open eye, ear, and heart of God. And Solomon understood this in his great prayer of dedication for the temple he had just built in 1 Kings chapter 8. It's a long, long, beautiful prayer. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And Solomon went on to say that even if God's people be in exile far from Jerusalem, they could pray toward this place, confess their sins, and know that God will hear them. So this is what Daniel was doing in exile. He was in Babylon, far, far from Jerusalem. But he was praying towards that place, even though there was no longer a temple there. He was praying, knowing that his prayers would be conveyed to the one true God in heaven. So the prayer life of the Jews could survive the loss of their house of prayer. Now Jerusalem represented the past. It was where the temple had been. It was the homeland from which Daniel and many others had been exiled. But it also represented the future because God had promised that he would bring his people home. And Jews today end the Passover by saying, next year in Jerusalem. See, praying towards the temple continued to give Daniel hope, hope of that restoration. And with hope, people can endure a very great deal. And without hope, we all shrivel and die. Now, as Christians, we don't pray in a set direction. Our prayers are not oriented towards a place, but towards a person, even our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray to and through him, knowing that he is our conduit to God. So the theology is still the same. We have access to the open eye, ear, and heart of God. He hears our prayers. The Lord Jesus at his right hand has the Father's eye, ear, and heart and intercedes for us. And thirdly, Daniel was praying and he was giving thanks in verse 10. In verse 11, we read that he was petitioning and he was seeking favor. And he was doing so probably using set prayers, pre-composed prayers. And the Psalter is the most important collection of set prayers, 150 of them. It contains praise and thanksgiving. It contains confession and petitions for mercy. And this is what Daniel was doing. In the monastic daily office, the Anglican daily liturgy, Jewish daily liturgy, all use set prayers, with the Psalter being the most important uh, source book for them. The monks pray through the Psalter every single week. 
Now we as good Protestants tend to look down on sat prayer, viewing it as rote, as empty ritual. That's certainly the, uh, the attitude that I used to have for a long time. But sat prayers have the advantage that they are very well thought out. They're the collected wisdom of God's people. If they're not straight from scripture, they're deeply formed by scripture. And we will see Daniel's facility in prayer in chapter nine, which we'll look at at some point next year, where he addresses a long, long prayer to God. And it's a prayer that's shaped by earlier scripture. So set prayers at set times in a set direction. And perhaps some of you think of Muslims because that's after all what they do. And maybe the people that we're most familiar with doing this. Yes, but Muhammad was following the long established pattern of Jews and Christians whom he would have observed in his travels through Arabia and Syria. And he also followed the custom of Christian monks who prostrated themselves on their knees before God, just as Daniel did, and was customary throughout the ancient Near East. So Daniel prayed these set prayers at set times in a set direction as part of his regular habit. He prayed alone at home out of necessity. And Jesus does say to go into your room and pray in private. But this is in contrast to hypocrites who gather in, to pray in public just in order to be seen by everybody and receive praises. But prayer is also corporate. Jesus also said, for two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. And each Wednesday morning, there's a group that gathers here at PBCC to pray, to pray corporately together at a set time. And it used to meet here, right here on the platform. Currently it meets in Zoom. And uh, Sean started this prayer group a number of years ago after he came back from a sabbatical at Regent College. And he was so transformed by what he learned there at Regent, including about formal prayer, that he wanted to continue it here. And so each week they gather to pray, and each week the prayer time starts with a set prayer with the Anglican collect for that week, and each prayer time ends with a set prayer, saying the Lord's Prayer together. So that's one group that meets for regular prayer at a set time. Then we also have a prayer team that meets here on Sunday morning for collective prayer. So Daniel was a man of prayer, but I don't think he was what we would call a prayer warrior. I don't think that he was wrestling with God in prayer. He wasn't praying against the king or against the officials. Instead, three times a day, he got on his knees signifying his humble submission to God. He faced Jerusalem knowing that his prayers would be heard in heaven and he paid full attention to God. Three times a day, he reoriented himself onto God. Even when there was an irrevocable decree forbidding him to do so. Even when he was facing the penalty of death. And this was his daily pattern, day in and day out. So three times a day, he heeded the psalm, Psalm 46 that we read, be still and know that I am God. 
You see, Daniel was a man at rest. He was unlike the other officials who were worked up, who were frenetically orchestrating his downfall. They were rushing around as this agitated throng to the palace, to Daniel's house, back to the palace, trying to work the system to bring him down. And Daniel was not like the king who was just passively compliant in the hands of these officials as they easily maneuvered him into their conspiracy. Daniel was the calm at the center of the storm that was brewing here in Daniel chapter six. He was simply being faithful to God and to the king and to his job. And he was being faithful by regularly coming before God and reorienting himself onto God in stillness and quiet. Now in doing this, Daniel didn't try to be conspicuous. He was simply doing what he always did. But the officials knew what he always did. They knew his daily practice. And so they had no trouble finding him. Verse 11, then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So for the second time, all the officials go together as an agitated throng. They go from the palace, this time to Daniel's house. And earlier they had sought, they were seeking to find a charge against him, but they could find nothing. And now they find him, and what is he doing? He is seeking God, as they knew he would. And now it's time to close in for the kill. Verse 12, so they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree, did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing he still prays three times a day. So the officials skillfully lead the king into their trap. First they ask the king to confirm the decree and unaware of their devious purposes, he does so. He simply affirms that the decree is irrevocable. And then the bureaucrats sprung their trap. Daniel, the exile, pays no attention to you or to your decree. And just like Belshazzar belittled Daniel for being one of the Jewish exiles in the previous chapter, chapter five, so, these, so do these conspirators. Their jealousy is clear. This exile, this Jewish exile, this refugee is too successful. He's intruding onto our territory. He needs to be put in his place. Verse 14, when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. So the king immediately realized that he has been duped. He is now trapped. And he makes every effort to, the rest of the day to come up with a solution, but he's trapped by his own irrevocable decree, trapped by his own bureaucracy. He's in a bureaucratic nightmare. 
And at the end of the day, the officials returned to the palace. Verse 15, then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, remember your majesty that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. So for the third time, the officials go as an agitated throng. They've gone from Darius to Daniel's house. Now they go back to Darius and his palace to remind him of his decree. And defeated, Darius sends Daniel to the lions. And heartbroken, he makes one final comment to Daniel. May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Now back in chapter three, prior to sending Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the blazing fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar had gloated, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And they had replied, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, in that case, Nebuchadnezzar willingly sent them to the furnace, infuriated by their obstinance. But here, Darius has tried to avoid sending Daniel to the lion's den. And in the end, he sends him unwillingly. In verse 17, we read that a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him and he could not sleep. So the king spends the night alone in his palace alone without any of the usual diversions to keep him happy, wives, concubines, dancing girls, whatever they might be, he's without any of these distractions, these entertainments. It's him alone with his thoughts. And meanwhile, Daniel spends the night in the lion's den, the scary sleepover. Will he survive? And at first light, the king hurries to the lion's pit. Verse 19, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done you any wrong before you, your majesty. Now, the previous evening, Darius had said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. Now he cries out in anguished distress, asking Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually, being able to rescue you from the lions? Yes, replies Daniel, 
finally we hear Daniel's voice. This is the only time in the whole chapter that he actually speaks. Yes, God sent his angel to be his presence with him there in the lion pit. Daniel had done nothing wrong, either to God or to the king. Therefore, the lions did him no wrong. Daniel was raised from the pit and no harm was found on him. Why? Because he trusted God. He was faithful to God just as he had been faithful to the king and to his job at the beginning of the chapter. And then at the king's command, those who plotted to destroy Daniel were themselves thrown into the lion's pit and devoured before even hitting the ground. Their plan backfired in a most spectacular way. And King Darius wrote to the entire empire and issued a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. And he backed this up with a glorious doxology, an expression of praise to the one true God. Verse 26, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So what endures forever? Not the Babylonian empire. That has already fallen. Not the Persian empire. That too will fall. Not the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which supposedly cannot be revoked, but God and his eternal kingdom. And this is what King Nebuchadnezzar had finally come to realize after four chapters, resulting in his doxology to the one true God at the end of chapter four. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And this is what King Darius has now come to learn. And this is what King Belshazzar, in between those two kings, failed to learn. Then the chapter ends with a brief conclusion, verse 28. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So the chapter starts with Daniel flourishing in a foreign land and it ends with him flourishing in a foreign land. But in the middle, life has been anything but easy. Daniel has been faithful to his king and to his job, but the entire imperial bureaucracy was determined to bring him down. They thought they had succeeded as he was thrown to the lions. His situation seemed hopeless. But in prayer, he kept orienting himself onto God. And God was present with him, even in the lion pit. Just as God had been present with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the blazing fiery furnace. Now this story, or I should say really these two stories, uh, both ch chapter three and chapter six, encouraged future generations of Jews living in the diaspora under foreign empires to remain faithful, both to God and to their position in those empires, those pagan empires. Some of them would not be delivered from their trials. They would be killed, martyred for their faithfulness to God. So in our scripture reading from Hebrews 11, the first part of that chapter is full of the stories of, of uh, great victory 
of overcoming the giants, of closing the lion's mouth, of um, quenching the flames. But then there was a turn partway through. Because then there were people, faithful people, who were killed, who were stoned to death, who were sawn in two, who died horrific deaths. And that's what happened. There were those who would not be delivered from their trials, they would be killed, martyred for their faithfulness to God. And in our next chapter, Daniel chapter seven, we will see why God's faithful people are killed for being faithful. They prayed, but they were not delivered from their trials in this life. And throughout history and around the world today, God's faithful people are being killed for, for being faithful. And so we pray for the persecuted church. And we're concerned today for the future of our Christian brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. And this was the country that was highlighted in our e-news this week as we highlight uh, persecuted Christians in the countries around the world where it is most difficult to be a Christian. And these stories of Daniel encourage us today. Not many of us are facing the blazing fiery furnace or the lion pit, but many of us are facing trials. We just sang that uh, the song about giants fall. But the giants that may need to fall are actually not the oppression that we feel, those who are persecuting us, the difficulties that we're facing in life, the ill health. The giants that need to fall may actually be within us. Fear, anxiety, worry, agitation, the need to be in control. Because we can be fervent in prayer. We can wrestle with God in prayer and still have all those giants in control in our life. We can be fervent in prayer and still be consumed by anxiety, by fear, by worry. We can still be in a state of agitation. It is a much harder thing to learn to still ourselves before God to be still and know that he is God, to submit ourselves and to seek to live faithfully in whatever difficult situation he has us and to be willing to accept his will whether he delivers us from that difficult situation or keeps us in that difficult situation. And that's what Daniel was doing. He submitted himself to God and remained faithful. Daniel dared to stand alone, not in opposing the king or the empire or the officials. He dared to stand alone by quietly going to his home, getting on his knees and praying to God. He stilled himself before God. He was not agitated like the officials. He was calm and faithful, faithful to the king and faithful to God. And he could still himself before God even in the face of death because stilling himself before God was his daily practice. He was a man oriented unto God. And may this be true for us also.
May we still ourselves before God. Now I want to close this morning with two set prayers. The second set prayer will be the Lord's Prayer, which uh, we will all say together. But before that, the collect for today, the 12th Sunday after Trinity. And this is a prayer that goes back at least 1400 years. And I've asked Lucinda to lead us in this prayer. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who is always more ready to hear than we are to pray, and who wants to give more than we desire or deserve, pour down upon us your abundant mercy, forgiving us those things in which our consciences conscience is afraid, and giving to us that which our prayer dared not presume to ask. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And now let's stand together and say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you now and remain with you always. Amen. Go in peace.